0: from a financial point of view, from a societal point of view. Cracking these issues benefits all of us equally. A lot of Chinese companies, they have been doing a lot of work. And last year, they made a lot of breakthroughs.
1: Hello, what do companies really think about sustainability? We asked 161 of Fidelity's investment analysts around the globe. You heard a couple of them just now. Their answers to that question and many others have been combined and analysed to form Fidelity International's ESG Analyst Survey. Many times on this podcast, we've reflected on the fact that companies which embrace sustainability tend to outperform. As markets gyrate, that can be very useful information. I'm Richard Edgar, and this is Rich Pickings, Fidelity's Asset Allocation Podcast. With me to digest the findings of the survey are Gita Bell, Global Head of Research for Fixed Income, Fiona O'Neill, Head of Strategic Initiatives for the Global Investment Research Team, and Fixed Income Portfolio manager Chris Atkinson. Thank you all for joining me.
2: Hello, Hello, Richard. Richard.
1: Now, it's been a crazy couple of weeks with markets down, inflation up, financial forecasts being turned on their heads. So I want to know what's been on your mind. Gita, you first of all.
2: So I think given that I, I've got a large team of um, research analysts working um, in fixed income with me, it's, it's making sure that everybody understands how to approach difficult market conditions. Um, there are lots of people who have never seen a rising rate environment in their, in their careers if they're newer to the financial services industry. And so I think giving them best practices are, are what's on my mind. I would also just say that, you know, from a specific market dynamic, I think what we're really looking at is default rates and fixed income, and whether default rates and credit spreads are both going to start to tick up, um, particularly in in more leveraged parts of the the market. Mm,
1: Enough to put a shiver down your spine. We'll come to Chris in a minute. But first of all, Fiona, how about you? What's what's on your mind uh, at the moment as we look at what's uh, on our screens, I guess?
3: So I guess I would pick up a little bit on what Gita said. I mean... Our analysts, and one of the things we're going to talk about is the engagements that our analysts have with their companies, both on the fundamentals and also on all things ESG. And what we've got to make sure is that those engagements and that real-time information filters through into our modelling of companies, into our uh, stock recommendations as quickly as possible. And that's particularly important at times of duress in the market, at times of turbulence. And so it's really just making sure that we get the transmission mechanism for what our analysts are seeing on the ground, hearing from the companies and and making changes if needed to our portfolios as quickly as possible.
1: Synthesising all that information and trying to do so swiftly. Uh, Chris, you're managing money. Um, what's it like for you, and when you see markets go through the changes that we've uh, that we're, we're living through at the moment?
4: Uh, yes, well, thank you, Richard. It's uh, it's pretty eventful, um, and as you said in your uh, introduction, really there are only two issues that the market is focused on at the moment, and that is inflation and the ability of central banks or the, the the amount that central banks are going to need to hike in order to crush inflation out of the system, and of course the impact that that will have uh, on growth. Um, It was described to me the other day of sort of trying to land a jumbo jet on a uh, on a, a football field, uh, which I think is a pretty good analogy. To, to be fair, obviously it's going to be fairly bumpy and uh, uh, quite difficult, but I, I think the added complication there is um, that all the other central banks are trying to land their jets on on the same uh, football field <laughs> at the same time, uh, which makes it quite tricky. Um, so, what does that mean for the portfolios? It means that we, as you know, as Gita and, and, and Fiona said, need to be kicking the tires and, and making sure that you know. Our holdings are as as defensive as as they can be in this situation to, to, to make sure that we preserve capital for investors going forward.
3: If I may, I think the other thing is just to make sure that we are genuinely positioned as we think we are. So, you know, the unintended consequences or, you know, we're very much a fundamental bottom-up stock picking research team. We need to make sure that when we translate that into portfolios, you know, we overlay thinking about things like currency positioning or country exposure. Um, So it's really trying to put the mosaic of all of the jigsaw pieces together and make sure we really genuinely are having portfolios uh, that are reflective of our combined views. All
1: right, thank you for that uh, for that context. I'm going to extend Chris's uh, jumbo jet analogy, and we're going to go to the control tower now, because uh, I wanted to hear a little bit more on uh, this market view from Fidelity's chief investment officer, Andrew McCaffrey. So a little bit earlier, I asked him how the turbulent backdrop, I'm sorry, I will stop doing um, flying metaphors after this, but how it's all feeding through into the company's global asset allocation view.
5: So where we stand today is that we've uh, remained very cautious on overall risk. So, um, uh, you yeah, know, we're still looking that markets can provide better opportunities uh, to be able to take on uh, risk and, and that again uh, I think very often we think of it as uh, an equity risk but actually you know as I mentioned actually an opportunity to now having been short duration for some time is actually to unwind that and maybe even you know to build to have a slightly longer profile and duration as we think that yields can come off in government markets for a while. Um, combined with that is that you know, we still feel that uh, there are pressures and that we don't know how it will play out um, for that pricing on the high yield uh, or high yield environment. Uh, so being more cautious in credit and going more for the investment grade area is a, a slightly more defence probe, but also better risk reward um, pricing there.
1: Andrew McCaffrey talking to me a little bit earlier. Now, Chris, So how do you deal with that um, in your own allocations?
4: Yeah, I mean, I, w- I would agree with uh, Andrew's comments on the, the value in investment grade uh, over high yield. Um, one, for the, for the reasons that he said around uh, being more cautious, uh, but also because investment grade credit has priced in uh, a lot of the downside. So if you look at global investment grade we are sort of around the 70 75th percentile depending on which market um, you look at in terms of valuations if you move into European uh, investment grade we're around the 90th percentile so really what that's telling you is a recession is, is, is very much priced in and really the you know the, the the only downside if you like is is if we experience a more extreme scenario such as uh, that during the financial crisis um, or, or during COVID. Now, maybe the case that, that we are standing on the edge of a, you know, a crisis, um, you know, who knows, if, but of course if that is the case, um, then central banks are obviously going to have to reverse their, their, their policies pretty quickly. So yeah, I would, I would totally agree that investment grade is looking uh, relatively uh, attractive compared to other risk assets. European high yield, uh, global high yield are sort of around the 50th, um, 60th percentile in terms of valuation. So if the market does uh, take another nosedive, uh, there's a lot more room for for those assets to underperform. Um, A lot going on, Uh, a very complicated uh, market
1: backdrop at the moment. Um, But we're going to dig into the survey now, because regardless of what is going on in the world, Fidelity's analysts keep engaging with issuers, whether it's listed companies, private companies, real estate and more. And their aim in all this engagement is bringing about change. So, Geeta, uh, uh, the words are fine, but it's all about deeds, really, isn't it?
2: Absolutely. I think that y- you have to walk the walk. And and in this case, what it means is that not only do we need to be um, talking to um, our issuers on, on occasion, it means that we have to really be embedding ESG and our philosophy of engagement that we've always brought to our financial analysis into our ESG analysis as well. And so... Um, Talking to management has long been a, a, a core philosophy of our our process. And I think it, it's even more important when you're talking in a new emerging area like sustainability that our investment analysts are really um, carrying that, that message forward.
1: And talking of the analysts, Fiona, what are they seeing at the moment? What are the big themes?
3: I think one of the big things that really struck us from the survey was just the plethora of different topics that the analysts are engaging with their companies on now with regard to ESG. It's no longer just greenhouse gases. It's no longer just a G in the traditional sense. But you have issues now like, fantastically, biodiversity that absolutely should be on the agenda. And the the analysts are really highlighting that that is now on the list of topics they're discussing. Deforestation social issues the d and not just the d but also the i of d and i so um that's what i think is really encouraging um it's also really encouraging to see from the analysts just how much change they think that they can bring to bear as a result of their engagements with the companies be they engagements on behalf of fidelity or even more powerful when we get together with um other Asset managers, other shareholders. And, and the final thing I'd say is that, you know, the analysts are highlighting that that kind of engagement is second only to government policy when it comes to affecting change.
1: Brilliant overview. We'll we'll come to some of that in more detail in a moment. Um, uh, Chris, your involvement is different as a portfolio manager. Um, what have you noticed over the past twelve months in terms of um, the way that you're able to engage with companies and perhaps how they respond um, to you?
4: Yeah, uh, that's, a, that's a very good question. I mean, it's certainly true that uh, companies are much more open to to engagement, and I think that is, you know, particularly true when we are looking outside of Europe. So I think it's. Uh, sort of fairly well known and understood that that Europe has sort of led the charge with regard to a lot of Um, issues around sustainability, and therefore European companies have had to be a little bit more uh, sort of proactive in that sense. But really what we're seeing now is, you know, that broadening out to to other parts of the world as well. So obviously into, um, you know, into North America uh, and Asia, uh, we're definitely seeing much more interest in uh, in companies, uh, you know, having an active engagement with us. I think the other point that I would make is that, you know, obviously as a fixed income investor, often we get the question. Oh, well, you guys don't have a vote. You know, what possible... Influence can you have uh, over uh, over these companies, and, and the honest answer is actually we, we could have quite a significant influence, both in terms of you know the private issuers that um, our, our equity colleagues you know can't touch because there is no uh, listed equity, and we're obviously lending to them, um, and sometimes we'll be lending to them you know two, three, four times a year uh, when they come back to the market to raise to raise capital, uh, but also in terms of those issuers where um, you know, Fiona and her colleagues are involved, you know, having that combined focus of debt and equity to sort of, you know, zoom in, if you like, on, on management and really sort of hold their, their feet to the fire for one for of a better explanation. Feet to the fire. That that, that was something I wanted to
1: pick on, up on because um, unlike an investor, um, you're lending money and I, I'm quite nice to my bank manager. Um, I, I presume you get a different reception, do you? And, and Geeta, maybe you want to come on this as well, um, that you get a different reception as a fixed income lender um, than maybe the, the
4: equity investors do. Well, I think they you know, they obviously want to retain access to capital markets. So for you know, very well capitalized companies, companies that are in the higher rankings of investment grade, Perhaps they they don't need to worry so much about you know what their their fixed income investors their creditors um, say. But I would say you know sort of empirically that that's not really true. But you you could make a case for that. But certainly as we move down the rating. Um, uh, spectrum and as access to capital becomes increasingly important for for those companies so in, into the edge of investment grade, triple B and below, we, we find that uh, issuers are very keen to maintain access to, to debt capital markets and therefore are entirely uh, willing to be uh, to be engaged with.
2: I think Chris has said it all very well in terms of access to capital markets, but I think there's two other trends that we really need to talk about, which is number one, The amount of labeled bond and labeled loan financing that is now um, taking place in the market, this is green bonds, social bonds, sustainability-linked bonds that are coming to market, this has been an exponential growth for a number of years. And so for the first time, because debt capital markets are capable of financing an issue dedicated to sustainability... Actually, in some cases, the conversation about sustainability gets to be a lot more granular, gets to be a lot more specific, and, and there's a real opportunity there. The second thing that I would say is I think Chris has highlighted the kind of interest in accessing capital markets, particularly if you're, you're weak or rated in, in, in the rating spectrum. But I would also say that, that companies that are um, invested in by fewer kind of stakeholders at this stage are actually looking for conversations. They want to know what good looks like. So if you go and talk to a a high yield company that maybe just has bonds in its capital structure, or if you go talk to a company that only has bank loans in its capital structure, there aren't 12 different equity holders beating down the door to say, this is what a good sustainable characteristics look like. This is what you should be measuring. This is what you should be targeting. So often what i found is that the conversations that we can have with these issuers are, are far more impactful than if you're talking a bit of mega cap kind of company where your stakeholding as a shareholder may be actually relatively less important um, to the overall um, you know, investor message that's going out there. Um, so so I, think, I think there's an obligation upon all of us, whether we invest in equities, whether we invest in bonds, whether we invest in loans or, or, or real estate or infrastructure or anything else to say, what is my role in this sustainable future? And how can I exert the most amount of influence that I possibly can on, on making um, the, the, the future that we all want?
1: You make an important point there, particularly on the equity side, where if it's a huge company, um, any one asset manager's um, uh, share of the um, equity is going to be um, a, a small proportion. We've mentioned this before, that um, engagements aren't always a solo venture. And um, we're going to hear now from one of the analysts, who's also a portfolio manager, Marcel Stutzel uh, and he explains how cooperation is sometimes the best path to success.
0: There are instances where we own 10% of a company let's say and we can have very direct access to management to the chairman to the board these kind of things and really drive change on our own, so to speak. The are other examples, you know, with large companies where we're unlikely to own 10% of, uh, you know, a company of around 100 billion market cap. And there you really make sense to partner with other asset managers, you know, who usually are competitors. But on subjects like this, we all benefit and we all win, you know, from a financial point of view, from a societal point of view. Cracking these issues benefits all of us equally. So it really makes sense to, to collaborate. And, and we work through industry bodies also to kind of pool our votes and, and, and try and have a more impactful um, message and a more impactful conversation, shall we say, with, with these larger corporates.
1: It's quite a, a different way of thinking, isn't it, Fiona, to, um, to start working with um, other asset managers?
3: Yes, it is, Richard. But I think the key thing here is what are we trying to do? And we're trying to bring about change uh, to the benefit of society, as Marcel mentioned, to the benefit of the larger world. And so there is still scope for us to do our fundamental analysis, to also come up with our own ESG ratings and to make our individual stock investments. Absolutely. That hasn't gone away. But in terms of making a change for the world at large... That's where working together with other asset managers, I think, plays a critical role and a role that you just cannot underestimate in today's world.
1: Hello, a quick message. We love making these podcasts and we know you're part of a loyal audience that keeps coming back to listen to them. But podcast audience statistics are a blunt tool. There's only so much the numbers can tell us about what we're already doing and what we might do differently. We've got... Exciting ideas for some new features and even some new shows, but we want to make sure that we're giving you what you want something useful, unique, and unforgettable. Maybe there's someone else you'd like to hear from at Fidelity, or beyond, or something else you'd like to hear more about. Maybe you've got your own burning questions to ask our guests. Now, our listenership is not in the millions, far from it, but you're an important, intelligent and influential bunch, so it's very likely that your feedback will make a difference. And on top of that, we'll enter you into a prize draw for £250 in Amazon vouchers, or we'll make an equivalent donation to a charity of your choice. What's not to like? We've made it easy for you. All you have to do is click on the link we put in the podcast description and that'll take you to a short survey or you can go directly to fidelityinternational.com forward slash survey and the survey and prize draw close on September the 10th. We're really, really keen to hear from you and to learn more about what makes you tick. So please do tell us. Go to the survey link in the description on your podcast app or visit fidelityinternational.com forward slash survey. Can't wait to hear from you. I'm going to look at some of the the numbers in the survey now. And uh, one figure which stood out uh, to me when I was reading it is that around the world, only 51% of analysts are confident that their company's emissions targets are ambitious enough to meet net zero by 2050. That's marginally up from from last year. Um, That's pretty disappointing, especially after COP26, because it means that about half of them are failing, doesn't it? Geeta.
2: I think it's a really good question. And I think the 51% highlights a few different things that are going on. So number one, I suspect that 51% is higher than it would have been three years ago, four years ago, and five years ago. So we have actually made positive change and positive progress over a number of years to get to this point. And that's still half of the companies. I think the second thing that's going on is that as we've all become more educated as an industry, on what net zero actually is and what it's going to take to get there. Particularly our near-term ability to achieve net zero has has come down. And and I think there's a realization that 2030 is not going to be um, the the moment that you achieve net zero for, for a lot of companies. But I think that now that we're focused on this more as an industry, as a collection of sectors, I think that the ability to kind of see that 51% go to 60%, go to 75% is going to be greater. And I do think that what COP did, more than from um, the company point of view, is to put the mechanisms in place for governments to start to take action to also incentivize uh, companies to, to get to that point um, on time and, and on schedule.
4: Chris, um, what about you? I don't think we should be at all surprised by the the fifty percent number. Actually, or, or if we are, it should be to to the upside. I mean, obviously, if you think about the IPCC uh, report that, that came out a few weeks ago, you know, which highlighted the fact that we are not um, on a pathway to, to one and a half degrees, it's not really surprising to to think that um, you know nearly half the analysts would would would. Perceive their sectors as not being uh, on on that one and a half degree pathway, and I think it's important to remember. Obviously, there's a sectoral uh, uh, approach, so each analyst is is covering their own sectors. There are some sectors which where the, the technology just doesn't yet exist: um, cement, uh, steel. Um, uh, certain parts of uh, uh transportation where there needs to be further innovation in order to get them onto that onto that pathway so i actually think 51% is a is a relatively encouraging number um and i would agree with gita that it that it will likely tick higher as we uh, as we move forward and, and and you know the pressure that we can bring to bear as investors uh, on these companies um you know hopefully starts to uh, uh, to work
3: i think um it would be remiss to not recognise that some areas some regions have made Um, more progress. And so, for example, we've seen our China analysts almost double uh, from in the low 30s to over 60% of um, confidence level in terms of the companies achieving their targets. And this goes back to what we've all talked about, the need for the engagement, but the also need for government policy. And so, you know, you've really seen that change partially in the confidence that our China analysts are having as a result of the the, the 2060 targets that have been announced uh, by the regime.
1: I think we can actually get a little bit more on that right now. We've got um, Eric Zhu, uh, who is in Shanghai. He's a consumer staples analyst. And um, he's also been doing some thinking about this.
0: A lot of Chinese companies, they have been doing a lot of work. And last year, they made a lot of breakthroughs. So basically, moving to this year, they have more things to share and they have more confidence in that. And additionally, uh, last year, the China government attitude was very determined to control the greenhouse gas emission and to meet the carbon neutral target. The bottom up is a very gradual way that a lot of Chinese companies, they have good incentives. But at the top down level, the government attitude accelerates this kind of work.
1: Eric Chu in Shanghai. Now, Chris... Um... What does that change um, in attitudes that um, Eric is spotting amongst the companies um, that has got state backing? There's there's real support from it from from the top in, in China. Um, how does that change the investing landscape for you? What what sort of opportunities?
4: Um, yeah, I, I would agree with the, the statements uh, that he made. It, you know, obviously um, there has been an increase in ESG awareness and and literacy amongst you know Chinese and Asian. Um, issuers, and we've had companies approach us in the fixed income side. You know, state-owned companies approaching us and, and, and asking us for our input into, um, you know, how they should approach uh, sustainability. So, you know, that's a really encouraging sign. Um, you know, from a, the opportunity perspective and from an investor perspective, I think there's still you know there's still there's still some uh, ground to be uh, to be caught up for um, asian investors particularly uh, from my experience in fixed income we conducted another survey earlier on this year and we were looking at um, our, our clients and their uh, preparedness for uh, climate issues and i think we found that roughly 18% of our clients in europe uh, had uh, set climate targets but that number fell to about 8% when you when you moved into asia so there is some catch up there to be to be done but that is an opportunity for us as, um, uh, as investors uh, in, in companies which are, we perceive to be uh, more sustainable because um, as we know from our experience in Europe, those companies tend to trade at a premium, whether that be uh, an equity multiple or in, or in fixed income land, uh, a lower spread uh, versus uh, versus the government bond. So if we can invest, if we can get in early and, and help them to, to de-risk in terms of their uh, ESG risks. Uh, then that means that we can capture that premium, we can capture that, that re-rating and, 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 and then that can accrue as alpha.
1: And Fiona, what examples can you think of?
3: So another example would just be the opportunities in the real estate space and the industrial space. You know, when we think about facilities management, for example, how to, or, or building engineering, how to take old buildings and make them greener or how to build greener uh, facilities from scratch you know that's a huge opportunity to improve on every level of the ESG by the way you know we're not just talking about energy efficiency within a building you're talking about what it does for the well-being of your workforce for example so I think there's huge opportunities there.
1: OK, we've, we started with a discussion about the, the market context that this um, survey uh, was taken in and then into the detail looking at some of the changes that have happened over the past 12 months. So now I want to move back out again and ask each of you for one main idea that sticks in your mind, the, the sort of the main message coming out of the survey um, this year. Um, it's only the second time that we've we've run it. We, we run the analyst survey um, frequently. There's a monthly, monthly survey that goes to all the analysts. But this is the second time that we've focused on ESG. So the, the big themes are still emerging. But what sticks in your mind, Keita perhaps, first of all?
2: I, I think it's hope. I think the fact that we've already seen progress in the investment community around these topics so that we have 161 analysts responding to a survey that's largely about ESG um, factors. I mean, that's that's a huge change from a few years ago that we have people suddenly saying, what's happening in biodiversity? What's happening in water consumption? I don't just have to talk to my companies about governance and that we have analysts who are realizing that not only is this imperative for for the planet and for the future, but actually it leads to better investment decision making, and and that they finally get that. So so I think I walk away with a lot of hope.
3: And if I might build on that, I think it's you know that the external world is getting it more. Uh, you know, if we all think about these topics appearing much more regularly on our news feeds on our on our screens on a daily basis in the newspapers that we read but also we're talking about it at just a much deeper level internally than even just a couple of years ago Um, and the fact that we can now bring in and think about and discuss and debate things like materiality mapping uh, and the nuances around some of these very tricky topics. And actually the Russia and Ukraine situation has also uh, shone the spotlight on. So, you know, you now have to think about the energy trilemma. The fact that we have to think about affordable, secure, and clean energy. It is the link you know, no longer is E separate to S, separate to G, no longer are any of those factors separate to fundamental. It is all part and parcel. They're all intertwined. You cannot separate them out. And these are the discussions that we need to, as an investment house and also as a society, need to continue to have.
1: So it's part of the conversation now. Um, it's giving Gita hope. Chris, um, what about you as you reflect on uh, on this year's survey?
4: Well, I mean, the problem with going uh, after Gita and Fiona is that they've exhausted all the things that I wanted to say. So, um, in addition to, to all the points that, that they've made that I would, that I would draw from uh, from the survey, is just how far the conversation has moved past. Um, what is the impact of sustainable investing going to be on performance in a, in, a, in a negative sense? So, if I if I invest in a in a sustainable fund, how much performance do I do I have to give up? I think we've moved way past that now. It's 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 we're now into uh, the realm of ESG investing, not only being mainstreamed, uh, but also it potentially being an additive to, to the process as well through that uh, reduction in external risks that, that we've talked about. It, it really is that, that the moving on of the conversation, I think.
1: I'm not sure everybody has moved on entirely, but that will be a topic for another podcast because I'm afraid we've run out of time now. Uh, almost, almost, because we couldn't finish Without playing hot cakes and hot potatoes, the Rich Pickings parlour game, fun and frolics for everybody at home as well, I'm sure. So what would you like to buy like a hot cake or drop like a hot potato? Um, Geeta, I'm going to come to you first again. What's your hot cake? What are you buying? Mm.
2: So my hot cake, and I'm not just saying this because I'm on a podcast with Chris Atkinson, but my hot cake is um, is transition stories. I think the the opportunity from taking something that may not yet be green and going to green, whatever market you're looking at, if you're looking at equities, if you're looking at fixed income, if you're looking at real estate, private debt, whatever it is. I think that is the place to be and, and those are my hotcakes.
1: Thank you. And your hot potato?
2: My hot potato is any company right now with um, a, a leverage balance sheet that needs to refinance. Ultimately, um, we haven't seen the spread movement that we would expect to see in, in high yield to the extent that we'd expect to see it. Um, to, to the extent that companies need to secure financing right now and, and already have very leveraged balance sheets, they're probably going to do that at much higher rates. Um, and that's going to put pressure on cash flows.
4: Chris next, um, what, what, what are your hot cakes? I mean, it's a little little bit difficult, isn't it, when the market's as volatile as it is. But I think if you gave me, you know, uh, $100 and said, uh, go and invest it today and don't touch it for another 12 months, um, then I would probably look to staying in my own asset class um, uh, corporate hybrids, so these are subordinated debt instruments uh, that are issued by large investment grade default remote, importantly, uh, issuers, um, usually in things like the utility and telco sectors, so relatively defensive. Uh, you know, they are high beta instruments because of that subordination. Um, and because of the, the volatility that we've seen this year, the drawdown is on a par with what we saw during COVID. Um, and it's not just about duration, it's also about the spread. So uh, as I was mentioning earlier, there they're sort of trading, you know, at the sort of 90th percentile for some subsectors within corporate hybrids at the 100th percentile. So they are as extreme as they have as ever been. Um, and therefore, in my opinion, that means there's a, you know, on a sort of medium term horizon, there's a high probability of, uh, uh, of very attractive uh, returns. Um, of course, uh, we could get a better entry point over the coming weeks. But uh, you know, uh, the other point I would make is that they are also uh, quite attractive from an ESG perspective. These issuers tend to be very highly rated in that respect. So ticking the safety box as well as an ESG box as well. Um, jolly good. And your hot uh, potato well, uh, yeah, circling back to the, uh, the beginning of the conversation and trying to keep my uh, market beta somewhat neutral by, um, uh, by uh, funding it with, uh, with high yield uh, and all my apologies to my, my colleagues in, in the high yield team. Uh, valuations there just haven't moved enough and, and therefore I try and, try and do it on a market neutral basis. Steering away. Okay, thank you very much indeed. Fiona, what about your
1: hotcakes?
3: So the hot cake, I think, would be very much a play on the theme of innovation. And it kind of links into ESG. I think there is an opportunity here, um, and I'm talking specifically about equities, uh, for big, large cap companies to really outperform. Because they have the wherewithal, they're more developed in their thinking, they have the funding to be able to make the changes. Where I think the smaller cap companies are much more in need of regulation to compel them and government funding to help them make the change. I also think that there's a role to play in the innovation that already exists out there Companies who have the technology, who have a proven track record. What I would also say, though, is I think the scope for us to think about private asset investment, because I think it's not just about playing with proven technology and companies that have track records. But there's also a lot of nascent technologies uh, that are going to be absolutely critical uh, as we think about the transition that we've talked about so much during this uh, conversation. And so, you know, I really think that there is a role there to play uh, through um, private capital.
1: Thank you very much indeed. And your hot potato.
3: So I'm going to take it all the way away from ESG, sorry, to back where we started in terms of our thoughts on markets. And I am the ultimate inflation bear. And therefore, I would be um, very nervous about uh, investing in um, not all, but most of the consumer space at the moment.
0: And
1: that's it. That is all the time that we have this month. Thank you to Fiona, Gita, and Chris for joining me, to Andrew McCaffrey and of course to our analysts. You can find out much more detail from this year's ESG survey on your local Fidelity website or at fidelityinternational.com. And if you've enjoyed what you've heard, then please like, share and subscribe. The producer today is Holly Eastman with technical support from Alex Wilcox. From all of us at Fidelity, until next time, goodbye.
4: This podcast is for investment professionals only and should not be relied upon by private investors. This podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is intended only for the person or entities to which it is sent. It must not be reproduced or circulated to any other party without the prior permission of Fidelity. The value of investments can go down as well as up, so you may get back less than you invest. For other important legal notices, please visit your local Fidelity website.